Good evening, church. Would you please remain standing and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This evening, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 15, as we've been uh, going through our little mini-series on the first four chapters. I think we're about halfway through. Uh, but I'm honored, privileged, excited to be able to, to, to be in front of you, church, tonight, in front of our Lord and Savior, and, and proclaim his word. So beginning in verse 1, Paul writes these words. <clears throat> but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we, we humbly come before you as your church this evening. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that as we sing songs, as we dig into this text in Corinthians, as we take communion, as we give, as every part of our service tonight, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working in us, that your truth would be proclaimed, that your name would be exalted, Lord. And so we pray that as we come to this text, as we get to have an insight on what was going on in the Corinthian church, what could be going on in our own hearts, pray, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would show us where we fall short, show us where we ourselves are seen in this text, what things here would apply to me, to the leaders of this church, to the members. Lord, speak tonight. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Keiki, you are dismissed. You can go to your classes. So far, we have seen uh, 
early on in Corinthians that the Corinthian church has a problem with division. They have many problems. If you read the book, there are problem after problem after problem. But Paul begins with division, that they are not a unified body. They are not united in mind or judgment, and it has led to quarreling within their church. He goes on to describe uh, this division and how it's manifested itself in their obsession with certain previous leaders that they've had in their congregation. They have segregated themselves over who their favorite teacher is, and Paul admonishes them for this. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 explaining where this type of thinking comes from and why it's contrary to the gospel. Paul begins in, verse one, in chapter 1 with an address of this division, and in our text tonight, Paul returns to the topic of division. This division that's within their church, and in doing so, by addressing it, he's dealing with two things. He brings up two things for them. He tells them that this division that they are having, it's a mirror. It tells them something about themselves. It shows them something about their sanctification or lack thereof. And in response to that, Paul begins a conversation on the nature of Christian leadership and ministry in the church. And so, like we said, in the past section, Paul had been speaking in terms of wisdom. In chapter 2, he spoke spoke a lot about the wisdom of this age versus the wisdom of God. He ended chapter 2 talking about those who are spiritual, those who walk in the Spirit, versus the natural man who does not. And chapter 2 ends with this dichotomy, the natural person and the spiritual person, the believer, the non-believer. And Paul flows directly from that into our text tonight. He continues to use the same language for those who are spiritual, but he does so to show here how the Corinthian church is falling short. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Chapter 2 ends with, with Paul saying that they, along with him, have the mind of Christ. That they belong to God. They are believers. They are not these natural people he's speaking of in chapter 2. And when he begins here, there is not a question of whether or not these people should be considering themselves as Christian, the Corinthian church. Paul is not saying that. He is not doubting their salvation as he begins this chapter. Yet here, it's obvious that when Paul originally came to them, that they were not to be considered spiritual people. And there's no surprise here. He uses an analogy of feeding a child. That just as an infant needs milk and not solid food for nourishment, so they could not be addressed as spiritually mature Christians, but as babies. Those in the Corinthian church were newborn baby Christians, and they needed milk. They were not ready for solid food. And there's nothing wrong with that in the beginning, right? All of us and our families here, there are many little babies in our church, more that are coming, and those little babies from day one cannot be eating solid food. They need milk. And that milk gives them everything that they need up until a certain point. 
Even for myself, we have a four-month-old at home, and we ask our three-year-old Alina if I can give Sophia a pancake if she's ready for it. Alina says, no, she only eats milk. She's not ready for it, right? When Paul's saying this, the first statement he's making about them needing milk when he arrived, it's not a derogatory statement. Paul is not putting them down for this fact. They originally needed milk. Milk for an infant is exactly what they need. It's full of nourishment. It's everything their bodies require. Their bodies cannot process solid food yet. And in this same way, the newborn believer needs the milk of the gospel. But it does not, they do not remain there. They do not stay there. Just as an infant grows and develops into a toddler, their diet changes. As their body develops, milk is no longer adequate. It doesn't give them everything they need. They need to move on to solid food. And this language of milk and solid food that Paul is using here, I think it can probably stir up some questions in us. What does he mean by this? Is there a deeper metaphor here? What is the milk? What is the solid food? In chapter 2, verse 2, we saw that Paul came. when Paul came, he desired to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. He gave them the gospel. And in giving them the gospel, we see in chapter 1, verse 24, that he gave them the very wisdom of God. And in chapter 2, verse 5, that revealed in the gospel is also the power of God. And if the gospel, the wisdom and power of God are milk, then what is solid food, right? Is there something higher, some greater spiritual, elevated uh, theology, some, some, some hidden knowledge that they must attain to? Or what is Paul talking about here? If we turn to Hebrews chapter 5, I think it gives us a little insight on what Paul is referring to. He uses this, or the author of Hebrews, Paul or not, uses similar language there. Beginning in verse 12, the author writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so the point seems to be in this text here and in what Paul is trying to get at, that the difference in milk and solid food is not one in levels of hidden knowledge or theology. It's not as though the gospel is the milk and then there are some levels of spiritual knowledge, some kind of enlightenment beyond that, above that, that is more complex and more profound than the gospel. But the language there, and again, what Paul is saying in Hebrews in context, seems that the difference in the milk and solid food is in their maturity in how they apply the truths of the gospel to their everyday lives. They received milk because they were unskilled in the word of righteousness. They lacked discernment. They lacked the ability to distinguish good from evil. I think uh, Paul Gardner, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, frames it well. He writes this, saying, This is not some deeper truth that has been withheld until people reach a spiritual status where they are competent enough to hear such things. Rather, it is part of the expected growth process 
and when the original message is absorbed even more deeply. In other words, milk and food are the same thing. They keep people alive. But one is the natural progression of the other. The message is not added to, but is now examined in the light of Scripture and lived out in ways which more deeply reflect the mind of Christ. It's a matter of application. How you are living out the gospel, how are you living out the truths we see in Scripture. And the Corinthian church has not experienced this progression. This sanctifying process where they begin to apply the truth of the gospel to their everyday lives has not taken place. And Paul addresses that. He's going to continue talking about it. But before we look at that, I think there's something to be said here about a pastor or anyone who is in a position to be able to have some kind of spiritual influence or impact in the life of another person. That they are able to gauge where someone is at. To be aware of what type of food someone is in need of. Paul knew what the Corinthians needed when he first arrived, and he knows what they need now as he's writing this. This is uh, an important part of pastoral ministry. It's an important part of discipleship. That the pastor and the leaders of the church know their people. They know their congregation. They know their congregation as a whole and as individuals. They know what they need at different moments in their lives. That those who are in need of milk are getting it. That those who have moved on to solid food are also getting it. And for those who, like the Corinthians in this text, have been lethargic and unwilling to mature, unwilling to walk in step with the Spirit, that they would get the type of correction and counsel that Paul provides here. And this is a good example for a pastoral team. For anyone who has opportunity, again, to be of some kind of spiritual influence or impact in the life of another, to disciple, to be sensitive to, aware of, where those, God has, where those who God has assigned you are at. Are they in need of milk? Are they in need of food? Are they in need of correction? Paul knew exactly what the Corinthians needed when he first came, and here again, he knows exactly what they need now. He continues saying, and now, or in, and even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, or are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? When Paul originally came to Corinth, um, we see in Acts that he spent 18 months there. 18 months, a year and a half of personal ministry, ministering to them and giving them the milk they needed, a nourishment that their baby Christian souls required. But here Paul is writing to them some four years later, roughly, give or take. He left them as baby Christians being nourished by milk, and four years later, they are still not ready for the solid food. And though when it's mentioned in the beginning, it doesn't seem derogatory, we're saying you guys, when you needed milk in the beginning, it was a bad thing. No, it was all right, it was fine. But here we see that this, in fact, is a problem. That in four years or so, there has been no growth. It's normal and expected that in the beginning, they would need the milk, but much time has passed past, and they should have developed some kind of maturity. 
The process of sanctification in the lives of these believers should have led them to solid food by now. But even now, again, four years later, they are still not ready. Rather than grow in sanctification and the knowledge of God, Paul says, you are living like the world. You are living according to the flesh. And Paul brings his receipts. He points out the evidence. He says, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Right? That's quite the accusation there. But he defends it. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The evidence is there. It's not hard to see. Paul says, look at yourselves. Look at what is going on among you. Examine yourselves. There is jealousy and strife among you. What does this say about the condition of your church and the nature of your souls? In Galatians 5, we see that Paul warns of this very thing. He tells the Galatian church, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The works of the flesh are evident. They are on display. And Paul tells the Corinthian church that the evidence is there. They do not look like the the list of the fruits of the Spirit, but they look like that earlier list, the works of the flesh. They are not walking in step with the Spirit. And we've seen so far in the first two chapters that Paul has called out their strife, their jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. All these things are present in their church. And later on in Corinthians, if you keep reading, a lot of those other things in that list are present. They're doing exactly what Paul warns the Galatian church about. As a result, they are becoming conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, causing division in their church. They are pitting themselves against one another as one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. They are showing fruit that they are walking according to the flesh and not the spirit. They are not living like a redeemed people. They are living like the world. I think it's something for us to consider in ourselves, within our own church, with our own lives. There's some natural questions that come about when we look at them, the way they are living, the evidence there. Look at ourselves. What's the evidence? What's the fruit of our church? What's going on in our midst? And then personally, what's going on in our lives? I have some questions I wrote down for myself, I think, that are good for each of us to consider. 
We won't dwell too much on them, but they are questions in, in response to a text like this that we could reflect on and think about. It's been four years for the Corinthian church, roughly, like we said, and there's not been any good progress. On the contrary. How about you? How about me? How long have you been a Christian? When you consider yourself then, before, in the beginning, and where you are now, who you are now, how you are living now, what do you think Paul would say to you? Have you grown? Have you matured? Have you been walking in step with the Spirit and producing fruit? Is the process of sanctification going on in your life? Is it evident? Are you like the Corinthians? In the beginning, you were excited, on fire, things were going great. You have this new relationship with God, but things have become stagnant. You are less interested in the simple gospel. You are going elsewhere. Would God protect us from that? Each of us, to be able to see that in ourselves, to reflect on it within our church, within each of us individually. And may God grant us leadership in the church that sees that when it's there and calls it out and deals with it when it needs to be dealt with. And so to this point, Paul has dealt with what's going on in their walk, the fruit that's there. The lack of their sanctification is evident. And Paul now shifts his focus and shows them why this silly obsession over teachers is ridiculous. He changes gears a little bit. He's saying your focus on these past spiritual leaders is misplaced. What's the point of it anyway? He asks these questions, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he answers it, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Again, Paul has addressed their misplaced focus. They're acting like the world when they fight over leaders. And in verse 7, Paul says that these leaders are nothing. That he and Apollos labored there in different ways, but ultimately, it is God who is over their church, not them. They had a job, they came and they went, but that church belongs to God. And in these verses, Paul shows us a lot about the nature of ministry and leadership in the church. A lot of these verses, they're specifically talking about leadership. About what working in the ministry looks like and how it should be done. And he uses two metaphors to get this point across. One in regards to farming and the other construction. The farming metaphor spans verses 6 through 9, and construction spans 9 through 15. 
And he has told them that they that the way they have brought about division in their church, what they're fighting over these previous ministers, is childish. It's worldly. And in these verses, he explains why. He shows why. He's addressed their division. He calls it for, out for the sin that it is, and then shows them why. I think in context, the way it flows, the way he presents it, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. These men that you have idolized and fought over, they are just servants. Their purpose was your faith. Not in them, but in the God who saves. They were just the means by which God chose to reveal himself to you. Whether it was Paul in the beginning, Apollos who followed, God assigned these men to come and serve and minister to you. One is not better than the other. They were there for their own jobs, for their own time according to what God assigned to each. And he goes further explaining this. Apollos and I were just servants. And beginning in verse 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Paul expounds on what he means about him and Apollos being servants. Paul came to Corinth and he planted. Like we said, he spent 18 months there. Apollos followed later and continued the work of the ministry to the Corinthian church by watering. Both had their tasks. And in these verses, again, Paul gives us key insight to ministry and leadership. That there are different roles for different ministers and different seasons. Both Paul and Apollos had their place and purpose in the life of the Corinthian church. A farm needs someone who prepares the field and needs someone that plants the seeds, but it also needs the labor who follows, takes the time to water it, to tend to it day after day. The farm needs these workers. They are vital to the health and success of the field. But Paul says that they in themselves are not anything special. They are just laborers unified in their task of doing the job that God has assigned to them. They do not do this for clout, not for personal gain, not to amass a following for themselves, not to start these groups or cults, but they do this as God's fellow workers. Notice in this section and the one that follows how much of the emphasis is on God. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For you, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And in verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. 
Paul and Apollos are servants, but it is God who assigned them. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God is to be credited for the growth. Paul says, he who plants and he who waters, they are nothing. Why? Because only God gives growth. He repeats himself. All the credit and glory belongs to God for what he's doing in his church, not for the men who serve in it. Paul ends verse 9 saying that we are God's co-workers. We are there to do our jobs. But the field that we worked on, and then he moves on to language about building, and the building that we worked on, they belong to God. He says, you are God's field, God's building. And here Paul personalizes the metaphor. This is not some abstract idea, just some kind of metaphor, but he's speaking specifically of the church. The field he planted and Apollos watered, the foundation he laid and another builds upon it, they are the church. The church is this field, this, the church is this building, and regardless of which metaphor makes sense to you more, which one you prefer to think of the church as, regardless, the church belongs to God. The church does not belong to the laborer. It does not belong to Paul or Apollos or the one who is currently serving there. If my math is correct. I think we're coming up on 12 years as a church from the original planting date. Um, And there is not a single pastor or family from that original planting team here in leadership or I don't even think attending. I'm pretty sure not attending. There are those who are around early who are still here and serving faithfully. But There were some that were removed from their positions. Others left the island, but they planted and laid a foundation. And since then, others have come and watered and built on it. But this congregation, this church, this church does not belong to those who were here in the beginning. And it does not belong to those who are here now. It belongs to God. That's why it's absurd for any church to elevate a pastor or a teacher to a place that only God deserves. Because God will place someone there for a time, take them away. But his desire is for his church is to remain, to progress, to continue serving him, building his kingdom. It's absurd for them to argue and divide over men like Paul and Apollos. The church was not theirs to begin with. They were just servants instruments of God's mercy, means by which God was building his church. The field and the building belong to God. He is the one who has provided the growth. He is the one who has made a way that the foundation can be laid and built upon in the first place. Again, for any church to idolize or set up their leaders in a way that gives them the credit, that puts the focus on them, that makes them a celebrity, usurps the authority and power of God. It denies his place as the rightful head of the church. And any pastor who does the same, who makes it all about him, that this is his congregation, this is his brand, this is something he's built up, stands in opposition to what God has planned for him in that church. Again, in this section, Paul is giving us a biblical presentation of ministry and leadership. 
he continues on talking about this, but he switches the metaphor a little bit, right? In verses six through nine, he was using the language of farming. It paints us the picture of the relationship between the believer, the minister, and God. And he ends verse 9 saying, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And for the rest of our text, Paul uses the language of building, of construction, to make his point. We read it like this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, Paul changes up the language here a little bit. There's a different metaphor used. But in some ways, this new metaphor helps clear things up a little bit, but I think it also gets more and more at the role of the minister in the church, the seriousness of it, that he who builds on the foundation cannot do it lightly. Again, rather than planting, Paul here now is laying a foundation, and though Apollos is not mentioned here, the point correlates with the previous metaphor. Rather than watering the already planted seed, the laborer is building on the foundation that has already been laid. And Paul tells us that the foundation that is laid is not something of his own creation. He did not design it, engineer it, or manufacture it. In verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul laid this foundation, but he did so with what God provided. By God's grace, he says, Like a skilled master builder, I laid this foundation, but I laid the only foundation that can be laid, Jesus Christ. And he calls Christian ministers here to build on this foundation, the only foundation that can be built upon. These final verses of our text, again, further explain ministry and the role of those who leads God's church, but there is strong warning here about how they do it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. If anyone is to take on the task of building up God's church, they are to take care how they do so. Again, there is only one foundation they can build upon, and that is the gospel. A church cannot be built on anything else. A church built on anything else is not God's church by definition. The ministers are to build upon the foundation of the gospel, the foundation that's already there. And they are to do so with care, with seriousness, with the big picture in mind. Paul brings up judgment day here to show the seriousness of it. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right, the manner in which God's church is built up has eschatological consequences. It is not a temporary thing here and now, but it has the future eternal reality in mind. Paul saying it is no small thing to labor in the building of God's church. Now, Paul doesn't give us uh, a blueprint or a step-by-step thing here of if you're going to build well, use gold, silver, precious stones. He doesn't tell us what that looks like, what that is in this text. Nor does he tell us what it looks like to build with wood, hay, and straw. But he tells us there is a difference. And God will deal with that difference. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. Right? Speaking of the day of judgment will reveal it. God will test their work with fire. He's going to judge the work, the building that is built by God's ministers. And the quality of that work will be evident in the way that it responds to God's testing, to his judgment. Some of the work will, res- will survive and it will stand up to God's judgment and those laborers will receive reward. But the work that is done poorly with weak and flammable materials will not stand up to God's judgment. I think it's important to note here, though, that Paul is not referring to salvation here. He's not making a case for salvation by works. He's not saying that the minister that builds well, that does good quality work, will receive the, war, the reward of salvation, but the one who builds poorly will not. They will go to hell. The reward or failure to obtain it in this text is not a matter of salvation. Rather, it is a warning that to ministers that if they build poorly, it will not stand up to God's judgment. It is not the minister who will be burned up in the end, but their work will. The builder will experience suffering. They will experience pain and hardship, but God will not reject their souls. I think there is some encouragement there. Many pastors have experienced failed ministries, things that have not gone well. Other pastors might go their whole life thinking their ministry went well, and then on the day of judgment, God will show them, no, it did not. But this, even if it is an encouragement for those who have failing ministries or who don't build well, it is not an excuse to mishandle the way we deal with God's church, the way we build it. It is not an excuse for ministers to build poorly. It's not an excuse for those who build God's church to use subpar material and be be careless about how they construct it. On the contrary, this is a warning from Paul to take care how we build Because those who God places in charge of building his church and constructing it and building it up and ministering to it, God will hold those accountable. It's a serious, serious text for those who would lead a church, who aspire to ministry, to build well. 
And though this text, this, this portion of it, again, it's referring, it seems in context, directly to those who minister, those who work in the church. Like Paul says, he laid a foundation and another builds upon it, but the one who builds must take care. We see elsewhere in Scripture that each and every one of us at different times, in different ways, has God given roles or assignments in the way that we build up God's church, in the way that we serve that the building of God's church is not just this congregation in mind, but God's kingdom at large. Some of us have opportunities to disciple others outside of our church or others in our family, friends, strangers sometimes. Others serve quietly in unseen ways, never known about doing the small things to help a ministry run or a church run. Sometimes in this life, they'll get never noticed or rewarded, but God calls each and every one of us to take care how we build, how we serve, to do it with the best materials and the best ability that we can to honor him with what we do. Let's pray, church. Lord, we we thank you again for for this opportunity. For the fact that we as a church can gather. We as a church can be here on a Sunday night in your word freely. To look at this letter written to a church 2,000 years ago to deal, that's dealing with the inner problems of what's going on within their body. And then we as a church now can, can look at it and see that you speak to us today through it. That you have, you have desires and plans and intention in this text for us, for in the way that we build our church, in the way that we serve, in the way that we serve your kingdom. Lord, we pray that that as we study these first four chapters in Corinthians, Lord, that you would show us the places that our church is struggling, failing. You would convict us in the ways that, that we are not living up to, to the standard, living up to walking by the Spirit, that we are not producing fruit. Show us, Lord where we are to, to, to progress in sanctification, where we are to pursue holiness, in what ways we need to change, Lord. And likewise, Lord, as we continue to build your church, as we continue to serve your kingdom, well, we pray that the ministers that you give us this season and the next going forward, Lord, that we would never, ever elevate them to the position that only belongs to you. That at all times and in all ways, we would acknowledge that this church belongs to you, regardless of who's here in the pulpit, regardless of who's on the pastoral team, the deacons, regardless of who's in the pews, Lord. This church belongs to you. And so we pray, Lord, that, that as, we, as we strive to live out the gospel as we seek to build your kingdom, Lord, that we would do so with the materials that will not be burned up. 
that we would build upon the foundation faithfully, honorably. That what we do for your kingdom would stand. Not for our own glory, but to the praise of your name that more and more would see you for who you are and come to know you, Lord. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.